And when you think about how secure the base layer is on Bitcoin and how important that foundation is, it's very possible and we would argue likely that, yeah, all these use cases are going to be swallowed by Bitcoin. An analogy I could draw here, Josh, is like, to some extent, I feel like the people on Ether are building a gorgeous master bathroom on top of the grass in the front lawn of a home construction site. And like the foundation hasn't even been built yet. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Folks, welcome back in for part two of our discussion on altcoins. If you missed part one, we do recommend you go back and listen to that episode first. In this second hour, Josh and myself, Dan, cover a number of specific cryptocurrencies. We talk about Dogecoin, Ethereum, XRP, and XLM, to name a few. We also discuss topics including different types of decentralization, cryptocurrency unit bias, hash rate and Bitcoin security, avoiding emotional investing, umbrella nodes running through Tor, getting turned on by Bitcoin spankings, and more couple of quick housekeeping items. If you are regularly listening and enjoying the podcast, do us a favor and hit subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you're on Twitter, we are at blue underscore collar BTC, where we are very active. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. So we're talking about some of the uh, easy identifiers for shit coins. And uh, so thin liquidity is another one. You don't want to be in a market and trying to sell, as Dan has so, so eloquently put it, when the liquidity dries up on you because then... You're not selling anything. You're a hodler now. Good. I pat you on yeah. the back, buddy. You're a fucking hodler for life now because it's worth nothing. Hashtag hodler for life. Hodler forever. Uh, another good indicator is promising ridiculously high rates of interest. Uh, we have see this a lot in the DeFi space. I think there's a lot of cool stuff getting done there. There's also a whole lot of nonsense running around, running amok. As uh, Mr. Cuban learned, Titan was was promising the moon and delivered him a bag of dog shit. And he bought that bag of dog shit. And um, he's living and learning. <laughs> That's what he's doing. Uh, another one is a copied and generic use case. And if you've been in this space long enough, you, you go onto like Cardano's website and you read about how this is going to be the most decentralized project that's ever existed. It's going to be faster than Ethereum, more valuable than Bitcoin. It's going to go faster than a speeding train. It's going to lift heavy buildings into orbit. It's going to do all kinds of things. But it's always two weeks from now. It's never. It's not going to be <laughs> delivered tomorrow, but maybe in a week or two, we're going to get this shit together. It's going to happen. It makes me think of this interaction I had with a buddy. Um, he was talking to me about XLM, Stellar Lumens. I was texting him and he said, I'm into this because I think it's the poor man's wire transfer. And I said, you realize that the actual poor men that are using cryptocurrency are using the Lightning Network on top of Bitcoin. 
I love it. You said it's always two weeks from now. It's like, what's actually happening today? Bitcoin is actually being used by poor men. Human rights activists are actually interested in Bitcoin. No human rights activist gives a crap about stellar lumens. It's, but no. the, the, these catchphrases, he heard that from somebody. Somebody used that phrase on YouTube to describe stellar lumens, and that's his one-liner for why he invests in it. But it's like, peel back the curtain, man. Look at what's actually going on in the world. How are people using these protocols? And there's really only one protocol that's genuinely be, being used on wide scale to better human beings and create more fairness and equity. And that is the Kraken. The Kraken. All right. So we covered the generic use case, the overtly a joke, overpromising, underdelivering, thin liquidity, ridiculously high interest rates. Any of those, all of those. Oh, oh and especially the pre mine. Don't want to overlook that. Any one of those and all of those in combination, you've got yourself a bona fide, certified shit coin on your hands. That's a blue collar Bitcoin certified shit coin. <laughs> we should start. We, we, should, we should start build that a on better Twitter. website. Yeah. Certified, certified shit coin. <laughs> Put a stamp on it. There's a, there's something that I am interested in outside of this whole cryptocurrency space. It's uh, basically SpaceX blue origin and some of the ways that they operate. The reason I bring this up is that the way blue origin operates and Jeff Bezos runs blue origin and they've been very slow to develop things as compared to SpaceX. So Blue Origin's um, namesake or their saying for their company is Greta Team, Ferociter. It's, that's Latin for move slow like a turtle, basically. And so it's, that's kind of the way I view Bitcoin and the development around it. It's very slow, meticulous movement with full knowledge of the end goals. But moving in a way that can assure that you're making, you're putting pegs in under yourself as you move. You're not taking wild swings at pitches. You're waiting for the right pitch. You're, you're sizing it up and you're cranking that thing out of the ballpark. So a lot of these altcoins, you see them taking wild swings. You see them promising everything and delivering nothing. But kind of like Bitcoin's Lightning Network, there's no token on it. It's not an exciting thing to talk about for a lot of people because. There's no, there's no angle in order to make a substantial amount of money from the Lightning Network. But all of these things are accreting value to Bitcoin by existing. All these second layers, these side mm, chains, yeah. all of these things are actually accreting value to the underlying value of Bitcoin. And they get glossed over simply because there's no price tag attached to them. But I think... That's a massive mistake and misnomer that people make when they think about these things. This makes me think about the fact that <clears throat> there are very interesting applications and ideas happening in the altcoin space. We have to make that admission. Like there, there are hyper-intelligent programmers and visionaries who've come up with really cool money applications and applications outside of money that are working on altcoins. But I think what a lot of these people fail to understand, their idea is that since people are going to use our app, let's say, or our token, it's going to become more expensive. And that's, I don't think that's necessarily how it's going to work. Because at the end of the day, people are going to store their money in the best, the most liquid store of value, the store of value that causes them to 
accrete more wealth over time. And one of two things are going to happen. There's a chance they're going to cash into these other tokens and then cash out, much the same way as you do with like casino chips. Gambling's fun. Going to Vegas and going to the Bellagio is a great time, but you don't keep Bellagio chips in your wallet. You store your money in US dollars and then you cash in, you have fun, and then you cash out. That's what a lot of people are going to do with these apps. And then secondarily, yeah, there's some cool monetary ideas that are happening in altcoins, but they're going to gravitate through that centripetal force towards the most trustworthy store of value that, that works and operates over time, and that's going to be Bitcoin. But what's confusing is they're like, no, this is a cool application. The price is going to go up. And I just, over the long term, Josh, I just don't think that's necessarily how it's going to work. I think that parlays perfectly into the next point I want to get at here, which is one of the reasons I think people are so interested in altcoins to begin with, which is this, the wild speculation that the price is going to go up massively, right? And one of the reasons that people do that is they see the price of X currency, say XRP. It's only 60 cents, right? So there's a, a cheap unit mm. price bias here that we're unit bias, yeah. That is that is one of the main reasons that people want to dive into these things because they think logically and they they deduce that, well, Bitcoin used to be 60 cents back in 2010 or eleven. What's to say that XRP isn't 60 cents now and it's going to be worth $50,000 in five years from now? Like that kind of makes sense on its face. And so they're, the problem that people have when they make those kinds of assumptions is that they don't understand that unit price bias is influenced by overall supply. So when we talk about supply, we're talking about the total amount of said units in supply, which in XRP's case is $100 billion versus the price of each unit, which is, say, $0.60 cents at the time. You have to multiply that $0.60 cents times $100 billion to find out what the market cap is. And so it gives you the air of inexpensive and maybe undervalued when you see $0.60, cents, but you're not comparing apples to apples when you compare that $0.60 cent price for one XRP to, uh, say, we're at about 32000 in Bitcoin right now, to say 32000 for one unit of Bitcoin. The reason that people have this hard time understanding this is that they're not comparing apples to apples with those kinds of cryptocurrencies. So I've done a little breakdown here to try to help knock that point home a little better. So XRP is the first one on my top of my list. If each XRP was an apples to apples comparison to Bitcoin, so if XRP had the same amount of units that existed, 21 million, XRP's price would be $2,904 right now. Damn. Yeah, that's incredible. And so let's move on to the next one here. So XRP, $2,900. Crazy expensive, right? Doesn't, it, seems, it, it seems cheap when you're looking at 60 cents, but when you realize per unit price conglomerated is a massive price increase. Yeah, you realize how far-fetched that is. Go buy a lottery ticket. Exactly. So XLM, Stellar, it would be $1,000. $190 per unit. Ethereum at this time, $10,069. And the last one on the list, the old Dogecoin, the one wearing the peacock costume at the furry party. That one is trading at $1,361 per unit if we're comparing apples to apples to Bitcoin. And that, I think, helps people wrap their head around the real value proper proposition we're talking about here, 
when you break this thing down to an apples to apples comparison in terms of Bitcoin. It's so, it's so insane to think we're talking about the most decentralized, most honest, most useful money that's ever existed. And it capitalizes on each characteristic of money down the line better than anything that's ever existed. But XRP, which is a centralized currency with running about 70 nodes in the world that people can actually reverse transactions on, is trading at almost 10% of the price of Bitcoin. I mean, this, it just blows my mind. We, we've repeated this, but this unit bias thing, I love what you just did by enumerating each of those coins in relation to Bitcoin and showing the holders of those how far-fetched it is that they're going to get to Bitcoin's market cap. And it's also just a reason why we have to move towards a different denomination for a lot of people. If you're new to the space yeah, and you're a sets. regular middle-class person like, like the two of us, stop thinking in terms of full Bitcoin and start thinking in terms of how many Satoshis you can get. Satoshi is one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. They're a freaking bargain. I'm on a calculator right now. One Satoshi is 0. 0.0003 US dollars. They're cheap. Get them while they're cheap. That's how I would phrase it. Or in the other direction, it's about 3,000 3, Satoshis per dollar right now, roughly. I think a good analogy, too, to break this down for people that, I mean, I collected uh, football cards when I was a kid. Did you ever collect anything like that? Oh, then? yeah. I have uh, actually a very legit collection of Michael Jordans and Kobe Bryant's. I have, Ooh, so you were the basketball card guy. Yeah. I have about 40-some Kobe's and I think over 70 Jordans. I got to find awesome. Yeah, I got. So that's perfect. I got to sell a, that stuff for Bitcoin. You should. Now that we're talking about it, I think you should. I think you should dump those shit coins. Oh yeah, I'm gonna. That's on the price. It's going on the to do list right now. Pulling it up. So I thought a good way to talk about this too, and kind of make a little analogy about it, is to think about in terms of baseball, football, basketball cards. When you buy a pack of basketball cards, you inevitably get, you know, 99% bullshit. Right? You're getting a bunch of no name players who are gonna wash out. Never gonna be any good. So. Common cheap cards, not a good strategy for long-term wealth, right? If you're a baseball card connoisseur, you're just tossing those cards. You're not keeping those. But if you've got a Kobe, a Michael Jordan, uh, any other influential players, you got one of the rookie cards specifically and one of the rare rookie cards, that is a, is a value proposition for long-term wealth. Um, like Babe Ruth cards, right? Everybody knows those things are worth an obscene amount of money. I don't think those things are going to become less valuable in the future either. Mm -mm. So what I would like to draw the comparison here to is all coins in my mind are very similar to getting a pack of baseball cards where you've got 99% bullshit. You're just going to toss them. Nobody's ever going to care about them. They're just cannon fodder. And then one of those packs, you're going to pull out a Michael Jordan rookie card and that's a keeper. And that's one you're going to want for the long term. And that's exactly what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin, having one Bitcoin or a good portion of one, however much you can afford, that's your Michael Jordan rookie card. Hold on to that thing. Hoddle on to that thing, Josh. Get the terminology Hoddle. Right. Yeah. My You're bad. Running a Bitcoin podcast, Josh, you can't use the word hold. True. Um, yeah. I've told you this so many times. Yeah. One of these is not like the other. I love that analogy. That, dude, that's what's, so, that's what's so crazy about the crypto space, which we, we've said before, we don't even like that term. It's the Bitcoin space. But there's this very harsh irony 
present. Bitcoin, in my mind, is one of the most exciting financial, if not, it's the most, I think it's going to be the most exciting financial opportunity of our lifetime. But for many people, it's going to end up being, this crypto movement is going to end up being one of the most damaging things they participate in from a wealth growth perspective. So it's this crazy dichotomy of one asset is incredibly pristine and it's camouflaged beneath just tons of flimsiness and riffraff. And so there are going to be people that I think on a 10, 20 year horizon build some crazy generational wealth because they're invested in Bitcoin. And then a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money if they don't understand what's really happening at the fundamental level of how these things accrue value. Yeah, it's kind of akin to recognizing the genius in Amazon in the late 90s after the entire internet boom exploded and you could have had that Amazon stock for peanuts and you held on to that thing for 10 or now 20 years later from the year 2000 till now it I think we're probably looking at something greater than the the proposition of increased wealth from that on Bitcoin from here in the to the next 20 years. I don't think that is bombastic to say. The other thing that's a shame is that when people get their ass kicked, they don't want to go back into the ring. And so you and I have both lived through one bull cycle. And we, we've seen this with people we both know. They invest in shit coins. They get their ass kicked. When the bear market comes, their shit coin never does what they think it's going to do. And they're like, okay, the whole crypto space is a joke. And it's like, no, it's just that your coin is a joke. Like, pay attention to what really matters here. But that it's a shame because that a lot of these people get shaken out of the market and swear it off for a while. And some of them are going to end up maybe being latest to the party because they got harmed and they don't want to go back into that relationship. They were in, a, they were in an abusive relationship with a shit coin. And so they, they, they have a hesitancy to, to rekindle the flames of love with Bitcoin. I think the same thing can actually happen even just on Bitcoin because there's such volatility in this. If, if you got interested in late 2017 and you decided to level in at, say, $16,000 and you were excited to watch it go to 19, and then you were bummed when you saw it go down to, say, I remember very vividly it dropping to, I think, around eight to $9,000 in January 2018. And I was pretty bummed out. I mean, I, I had done pretty well and I decided, I'll just hold on to this for the long term. But a lot of people would have sold at that point and then continued to sell it all into watching the next two years of just a dead, limp dick market instead of doing the thing that turned out to be the right thing to do, which was buy as much as you possibly could at that time and hold for the long term. And now you're looking, you're looking pretty good if you would have been buying through that. But back then, it looked like this whole thing was dead. So I could see a whole lot of people out there who got burned in that way, who decide, fuck Bitcoin and fuck this entire market because I got burned so bad. But it's just because they're, they're, the prospect of time that they were looking to make money in was so short. Like You need absolutely need to have a long-term outlook on this, especially if you're buying right now, to be honest with you, or in the last couple of months. Like It's a very real possibility that we could have seen the top and we might see a couple of years of, of some slow, lazy trading down to maybe as low as 10 grand. It could go that low. But counter to that point, I think in my mind, it's just as feasible 
that we could see this thing above a hundred grand this year. I don't know is really what I'm trying to say. What you just explained is that Bitcoin is an abusive lover, but it's got a lot of love to give. And yeah. and over time, Bitcoin puts out for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin will beat you. It'll hit you, but Bitcoin makes the money. So you can't leave that relationship because you're going to walk <laughs> yeah. away. You're going to live in San Francisco on the street if you leave this but it's relationship. Worth staying with this because this thing, <laughs> this thing in the long term puts out. We we got to we got to relate to the audience though. Even you and I. Let's say the bull market is over. I think we're both on the fence here. We we actually probably still both lean that it's not, but we're certainly willing to admit it could be. We've we've gotten hurt a little bit here. Like we we were. We were buying in the low 50,000s and the 40,000s thinking we're going up to 100. And if that doesn't happen yeah. for a number of years, we got a little spanking from Bitcoin. Yes, we did. But we're willing to take it because it's a hot spanking. When you zoom out, it turns you on, dude. <laughs> yeah, I think I have some sort of, some sort of uh, prisoner syndrome when it comes to Bitcoin. Like The more it beats me, the more I just want to <laughs> just want to snuggle up to it, tell it tell it I love it and stop, but it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop hitting you. But in the long term, it's going to take care of you. Yeah. We're either we're either Bitcoin psychopaths or we really are onto something here because there is something bizarre, bizarrely um, fulfilling about these cutoffs. Kind of like the fact that it's a real marketplace where nobody's stepping in to stop the carnage. Like there's no circuit breaker. This thing runs 24-7. And it doesn't give a fuck if it goes down 50%, 75%, 85%, which it's done. It doesn't care. And there's nobody that does. There's no central bank that's going to step in and save the day. Nobody's getting a bailout. And um, this, is, this is between you and your abusive lover. And there's no police coming to help you. You better sort it out. Yeah. You defunded them. And they're not coming to help you. <laughs> yeah. You're again. You're living in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it is bizarre to see. I mean, price cuts off, but all the fundamentals, everything about how this thing runs that make me believe it's going to be valuable long term are completely still intact. And so a storm came through and we just stood where we were and we're long-term investors. We encourage you to be the same, but you got to study, you got to learn, you got to put the time in and and do some homework to build that conviction. And obviously not everybody's going to reach the same conclusions we do. We recognize that, but price can fool you. If you're just, if you're investing because price is going up or you're selling because price is going down, you're going to get sent on a wild ride and you're not going to make any money in this space. And you're going to, if you let your emotions run you, you will sell and you will buy at the absolute worst times possible. Like I, I think I've told Dan this before and I'll freely admit it on this podcast. I have a proclivity to buy hardest when it's at its peak and want to sell the most when it's at the bottom. And I would suspect that I'm very similar to just about everybody else in the world besides maybe like the Stanley Drunken Millers and Paul Tudor Jones, the geniuses who tend to do it right. But psychology can blind you. You can be completely destroyed by your propensity to buy when there's greed in the water and sell when there's blood in the streets instead of doing the exact opposite, which is the way that you want to play the game if you're trading. But again, I think I would 
recommend don't trade this thing because human psychology will burn you. And uh, your own psychology is truly the abusive lover that you're trying to avoid here. So if, if you can, if you can buy when you're scared as hell and sell when you're greedy as hell, and if you can master that, um, you're going to win hard. But uh, I don't think that I know many people or maybe anybody who can solidly do that. I certainly am not one of them. We talked about taxes and capital gains earlier in this discussion. Um, another generalization, but based on my assessment, this is fair. If you compare the altcoin space to the Bitcoin space, altcoiners are trading a shit ton. They're in one coin one month. They're in another coin another month. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of trades executed. There's a lot of tax, taxable events that occur. You compare that to legitimate hardcore Bitcoiners, couldn't be any more different. Hardcore Bitcoiners are dollar cost averaging, buying and holding over time. And that's a juxtaposition that has huge implications, not only from a taxes and capital gains side, but also just from a it's indicative of the level of conviction that each group has in whatever token they're buying. Couldn't agree more on that. So if we're going to move on to talk about some shit coins, there's a couple of ground rules we want to want to talk about when it comes to decentralization. Because again, I want to, I want to impress on everybody that decentralization in this space is literally everything. If what you're playing with is not decentralized, then its use case, whatever it is, is invalidated on its face because you're better off going to Amazon Web Services and running whatever kind of application you've decided to run on there and let it be centralized because it'll be more efficient. Blockchains, as you hear in the news, are incredibly inefficient beasts. They take a lot of energy, especially the proof of work ones like Bitcoin. And that energy is only justified in my mind, and I think in Dan's as well, mm -hmm. when you're taking out an intermediary completely. That is the reason that the energy is justified because that energy would otherwise be spent from that centralized entity robbing you in some way. So like, it's basically parlaying energy from one central energy to a decentralized system that allows that intermediary to be out and not be able to politically, architecturally, or logically disintermediate any of this. It's all on its own. It's all independent. So the first part of this would be architectural decentralization, which is simply how many nodes is this network running? And in another way of saying, how independent is this thing truly? So in Bitcoin's case, we're talking about, as we know, 83,000 nodes. There may be more than that, which I suspect there is. I will say, you, you may know more, but I, my understanding of that number is that that is the verifiable, very low estimate. Yeah, anything running behind a Tor node would be completely out of that number. Yeah. And it, I think both of us have agreed. Umbrella has made this so easy, and they're automatically running behind a Tor network that I, I think the number is probably much higher. But just to be completely honest and forthright here, 83,000 is the number we'll run with. So, as far as, so that is architectural decentralization here. Political decentralization is how many entities control the software that the nodes run on. And in Bitcoin's case, we're talking about all open development, open source programmers 
and each node is voting by agreeing to install and run the current update that the open source developers send out. So they don't have to run any of the new developments, but they're incentivized to do it because they get more, um, like in, like Taproot later this year, it will give Bitcoin the ability to have more use case or maybe decentralized applications and a bunch of other things. But the point I'm trying to get at is that the political decentralization in Bitcoin is complete. There is no person who decides I'm going to write this code and everyone's going to run this code. Every single actor on this uh, network is going to choose which code they're going to run and they're going to run it and they have no influence from an outside party. It's a complete network democracy. I mean, it, it really is true democracy. You vote with your node in terms of which code you're running. It's a beautiful thing. It's amazing. I mean, the first time this has ever been done. And then finally, we have logical decentralization, which is if you cut the network in half, will both halves of this network continue to run and operate as independent units? And the example I have for Bitcoin in that, uh, with that idea is the hash rate on the mining network. If that gets cut in half, each one of those two halves of hash rate will run independently. Whichever one is the longest chain in the end is the one that all the nodes will recognize as the preeminent network and that will coalesce into Bitcoin. Josh, can you do me a favor real quick? Because there could be people listening that are confused on this. Can you define what we've used the word hash rate a few times? Can you just define hash rate and explain how it applies to Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's two separate actors operating on the Bitcoin network. There's nodes, which Dan and myself run, and that's simply a Raspberry Pi, a hard drive, and some software you download from the Bitcoin core developers which stores the entire Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, as of now, it's about 400 gigabytes. So each one of these nodes, 83,000 of these, have each downloaded the entire blockchain, which is the entire history, every event, every transaction that's transpired on Bitcoin since 2000, 2009 is on that node, and it verifies every single one of them from beginning to end. So there's no funny business. Everything is out in the open. Everything is audited. And everybody on the network, every one of these nodes has checked with each other node to make sure they're all running in synchronization the exact same thing. Then on the other side of the equation, there are miners. And what miners are doing is providing security to the Bitcoin network by finding, basically finding a random number, an extremely large random number. And whoever finds that random number first wins and they produce the next block. And the block is composed of around 2,500 transactions every 10 minutes. Those transactions are then conglomerated into a block sent to the nodes for the nodes to verify. Those, once they're verified, they send it out to all the other nodes and they all agree, yes, this is a legitimate chain or a legitimate block. This, all of the consensus rules of Bitcoin are followed. This is the next block. And then those nodes reward those miners from the... Uh, from all of the transactions that happened in that block. And then also, uh, I believe it's 6.15 Bitcoins at this time as a block reward. So there are six new Bitcoins every 10 minutes. So the reason that hash rate matters, back to the actual question, is that the more hash rate there is on the network, the more security it has. So it takes much, much more power in order to overcome 
the legitimate honest actors, which are the miners that are following all the consensus rules, in order to overcome them and cheat on the Bitcoin system, you'd have to, I think the last number I saw was like $500,000 per hour of energy usage you would need in order to try to mine faster than the rest of the network. And not only would you need to expend that kind of energy in electricity costs, but you would also need to aggregate enough miners to do that itself. So it very quickly becomes obvious that it's just impossible to aggregate all those miners, especially with the chip shortages and everything going on right now. But what that really boils down to is robust security for the Bitcoin network. There's nothing even within a couple of percentage points to touch what Bitcoin is currently doing right now with the amount of security it has. Nothing close. I love how you tied that up. At its simplest, more hash rate means more security. That's really all it is. The We'll link this in the show notes. The resource, I think, if you're like, all right, it's time for some Bitcoin tech. I'm not techie. This would be me, Dan. I don't have a tech background. That's the portion of Bitcoin I've had to dig into to the most to become serviceable. The best intro resource to Bitcoin tech that covers a lot of things Josh just highlighted is a book called uh, Inventing Bitcoin by Jan Pritzker. Jan Pritzker is one of the leaders at a company called Swan Bitcoin. He has a short, easy read that explains all these different things, hash rate, nodes, mining, cryptography, all these keywords. If you don't know what these things mean or you want to know more, highly encourage you to go read that book. We'll link it. So Dan, I think we've finally laid the groundwork to start bludgeoning and belittling some shit coins. What do you think? Yeah, let's get into specifics. I'm going to crack another beer. We have fattened up some shit coins. Let's take them to market and slaughter them. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get much for these. I mean, they're kind of... <laughs> they're. There's some pretty thin pigs. The bids are going to be low. Yeah, I don't even think these things would make it into the uh, the prize pony spot in the Lake County Fair. First one uh, we're going to level into an attack here is uh, one we've mentioned a few times already, XRP. I mean, besides a sweet name, I mean, my God, the creative juices that must have been flowing when somebody came up with XRP... <sighs> God, I want to get some of that ingenuity, you know? Oh. So I want to reiterate real quick before we dive into this one. The apples to apples comparison, the price of, of XRP, if, if there were the same amount of units as Bitcoin, is $2,900. Keep that in mind as we work our way through talking about this guy. XRP was uh, launched in 2011 by Jed McCaleb and a couple other engineers. Same guy who founded Mt. Gox back in the day, Mt. Gox being the exchange that famously exploded in 2014, taking the crypto markets and everything down with it, causing people to lose hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins, which they've actually still not recovered. Did you know that one? I, I just read that yesterday or today. I did know they a lot still, of them are still lost. Well, they, they have all the coins. They're in like an escrow account, um, but because of all of the shenanigans that went on around it. These coins have been locked up in an escrow account for, uh, what is that, seven years now? These poor bastards who had their money on that exchange still haven't gotten it back. 
Who who's it? Is the government in charge of this escrow account? It went in. It was in. It's in Japan. All this shit went down. So I suspect that it's the Japanese government that seized everything. That'll end up on their balance sheet. <laughs> yeah, probably. It's the nation state. Once the nation state Bitcoin game theory gets in uh, session, they're going to be like, whoop, Ooh. here these go. Here, the you can have some yen. Here's a couple of billion yen for the Bitcoin you held. Fuck off. So they built this thing to be faster, more sustainable Bitcoin. And they did that by centralizing the hell out of it. The founders, so we're going to talk about pre-mining here a bit. The founders started Ripple, or they started XRP, and they gifted themselves 80 billion XRP before it was offered to the public. And there is 100 billion total supply. So they got 80% of everything owned by the company that created it, which at the time was OpenCoin, later renamed Ripple. So Ripple owned 80% of the supply back then. They don't mine on XRP, so there's no energy getting expent on mining. Instead, what they use is a validator consensus protocol, which basically goes to each of the nodes running on the network and says, is this legitimate? This one says yes. This one says no. If 51% of the validators say yes, it becomes a legitimate transaction. And there are 70 validators or nodes running on this network. Five of them are recommended validator nodes. All of them run by Ripple. <laughs> Insanity. We're talking about yeah. this massive dichotomy here between 70 nodes and Bitcoin's 83,000. And those 83,000 are run by individuals who simply want to run a Bitcoin node in their house, probably have a very good understanding about what's going on because you wouldn't if you didn't. And these 70 are run by corporations and entities uh, related to Ripple. So a couple of things that are, uh, people would say su are superior to Bitcoin are that XRP settles in three to five seconds and it has 1,500 transactions per second throughput. And I know where Dan wants to go right immediately after oh, hearing yeah. that. Every time you do this, you, ju you, you lather me up here. Yeah, uh, go lightning, for it. Lightning Network just obsoletes this use case. Um, I, I have been separated from the XRP community for a, for years now. It's not <laughs> there's not a lot of thought leaders I'm interested in uh, following, but it'd be interesting to reengage because since 2017, when when XRP had just its manic run up, totally divorced from any fundamentals or reality, mind you. But at that point, Lightning Network was a newborn, and Lightning's growing up. Lightning Network is an adolescent, and it, it Lightning is a second layer solution on Bitcoin that enables unlimited throughput. So, I don't know how else to put it other than if you're making the throughput argument, Bitcoin is slow, it's cumbersome, it it can't clear transactions. I'm sorry, you're just behind the times. You don't understand what's happening on Bitcoin right now, and Lightning has obsoleted the use case of tons of cryptocurrencies, XRP being one of them. Well said. And Obsoleted. You I couldn't agree you. more on that one. That is the entire use case of Ripple, XRP, and it has been taken behind the woodshed and beaten mercilessly and bloody by it. And um, I don't know how long for this world XRP is, but um, she should have been sold off, slaughtered, and been fed on the dinner table quite a long time ago, in my opinion. I'm interested to see how you're going to react to this statement. 
I don't think this is going to happen with every altcoin. I don't think every altcoin is going to zero. But I do think XRP is going to zero. Do you agree? I, <laughs> yeah, it's not a stretch for me to agree to that at all. It, it, it is a total poser in this space. It's not solving any problem. It's pretending to solve a problem, but there's no, there's no problem that it's working on <laughs> right now. Yeah. And so that, that just the way I look at investments, if they're, if they're not filling a hole in the market that's actually needed long term, they're going to be valueless. And I believe that will happen to XRP in the long run. Yeah, term. I couldn't agree more. Here's the last kicker um, that I got here for you. Ripple has an algorithm that, quote, takes excess XRP off the market and puts it back into escrow controlled by XRP, unquote. It has an issuance by the same algorithm to distribute up to 1 billion XRP per month into the ecosystem. So that is a very fancy way to say they can price fix this thing. They can take liquidity off the market when they'd like in order to goose or kill the price of XRP at will. Wow. Algorithmically on top of it. You know, there's not even a according yeah. to what I've read about it, it's not even a guy making those decisions. It's worse than the US dollar. It's worse. Yeah. This is like fucking um Venezuelan bucks right here that are littered onto the streets because nobody wants them. If you're listening and you're invested in a bunch of different cryptos and you're you agree with people in this space that there's issues with centralized control of money. Like if you're someone that's like, yeah, they're printing too much money. They control interest rates, referring to fiat. The government has too much control over the money supply. If these are things you affirm, sell your fucking XRP, please. <laughs> yeah. So uh, real quick highlights just before we end this little discussion about XRP, because I, I don't think there's much else to say. It's been bludgeoned. Number one. Yeah. We got a massive pre-mine, opaque algorithm with issuance and re-escrowing. It's extremely centralized with only 70 nodes. Five of them are validator nodes. Uh, Ripple has stated that they can and will censor transactions. They're just out, they're just, oh, they're just out in the open. Yeah. It's, I mean, because, and, and that is in its essence because they're trying to cozy up to the government and say, this is the one that you should go with because we can do what you need us to do. We'll be your, your whipping boy and you tell us how you want to run it. They're the teacher's pet. Exactly. The, and the tattletale in the cryptocurrency space. They will rat you out. Um, use case, interbank transfers. Um, I think it's already been said well enough that this will be usurped by the Lightning Network and has and is being usurped at the moment in interbank and intercurrency exchanges by strike at the moment. Like This is ridiculous. It's in the snake's belly. Like XRP has been swallowed by the snake, <laughs> but not fully digested. It's still alive. It's, still it's heart writhing. still beating. So it's yeah. inside the belly of the snake and it doesn't know it yet. Uh, and then we got the last point I have is uh, validator consensus. Uh, very similar to the current financial system. And because we can, I mean, they've overtly said this is censorship enabled. Censorship enabled. Thumbs up. Uh, and so again, just to reiterate, 70 nodes compared to Bitcoin's 83,000. And political decentralization is abhorrent. Uh, Ripple 
alone can control everything that goes on in this ecosystem versus Bitcoin's decentralized open source, beautiful forest of trees that each one independently can do whatever they want. And there's no entity and nobody to, to step in and have a word to say about it. It's going to happen. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, XRP Ripple, had, we now do declare that it is a blue collar <laughs> Bitcoin certified shitcoin. Shitcoin. That's it. That's all it needed. I'm watching the chart right now. I think uh, we're going to probably watch this. Thing I think that's going to move the needle. Moment. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, oh my God, it's going. All right. So with that one off the chopping block, the next one's going to be an easy tossed softball that we're just going to be able to crank out of the park because in its essence, it's a, it's exactly the same thing as XRP with a slightly different use case, even propped up by the same sock puppet, Jed McCaleb. Man, Jed's all over the place. Dude, he's a prolific shitcoiner. So he started uh, Stellar XLM in 2014. It was a fork of the Ripple protocol. So it is literally Ripple or XRP. It's like he took a poo in the toilet and just split it in half. <laughs> he used a turd cutter. A turd cutter. He split that thing in half. He didn't think it would flush. That's a hard fork on a shit coin right there, <laughs> just in case you needed the analogy. <laughs> uh, it's funny that he used the exact same numbers too. So it's got 100 billion units and 25 billion of them were given to the founders. At least he was responsible and honest enough to not take 80% this time. He's only going to take 25%. So he took 25%. How altruistic. I know. What a good guy. I mean, this guy is a saint. No mining on this protocol either. Um, you can pretty much copy and paste everything we said about XRP because there's almost the same amount of nodes, only 66 total, extremely centralized. There are three nodes run by Stellar, 21 by other organizations, and apparently each one of them is running three each because there's 66 other nodes total. Uh, another validator consensus protocol, which means there's no mining, there's no one that can get in the... Well, there's one intermediary that controls so many of these nodes that they can pretty much do whatever they want. So it's kind of like a decentralized facade behind a centralized system. And uh, man, it's, I, I just don't think there's a whole lot else to say. And its use case is literally cross-border currency pair trading. And Strike is literally making that happen in whatever currency you want, out to whatever currency you want in the world on Bitcoin's network without ever touching Bitcoin yourself with fees that are next to nothing blows this ship out of the water. If we're playing Battleship, that was the last, that was F9 right there. F9 just hit your aircraft carrier. This entire thing is done. You lost the game. Yep. XLM is a BCB CSC. It's a blue collar Bitcoin certified shit. Shit coin. Just to reiterate again, 66 nodes. Versus 83,000 in Bitcoin. Political decentralization, we're talking about the Stellar developers versus an open source hornet's nest of honey badger savvy, salivating, just cyber hornets. Warlocks. I don't know. How about warlocks <laughs> that are <laughs> that are coming to slaughter any and all of these shit coins? Stellar developers are just curled up in the fetal position in their cave while warlocks are just beating the gates. Just slam them right open and murder them and their families. I think that's all we need to say about XR, or, uh, XLM slash XRP. 
Gorgeous. What do you got next? Uh, next up on the dock here is uh, Ethereum. And again, Ooh, this is a talking, good one. Let's be talking, fair. Let's be very oh, fair. Oh, we're going to be Ethereum. fair. Yeah. We're, I, I think we've been very fair and even generous so far. Yeah, we have. We've laid off. We've gone way lighter than we planned on. Ethereum's apples to apples comparison to the price of Bitcoin at the moment, around $10,000 for each Ethereum when comparing it in the same amount of units as Bitcoin. So um, it looks a hell of a lot less um, salivating when you think about it being $10,000, doesn't it? Yeah. Question before we go, before you tee off on Ether. Do you categorize Ethereum? Neither of us invest in Ethereum. <laughs> like We're supposed to have American HODL on in July. I hope he doesn't listen to this episode. He will not come. We don't have Ethereum HODL, okay? None. We have to clear I used that. to. I did. Used to, both of us, but we both exited our position. Um, I want to be totally intellectually honest, though, with Ethereum. I do not have it categorized in my head as a shit coin. Do you? No, I don't. And it does strike some of the boxes in my mind, but not all of them. Um, and I think it's better that we kind of work our way through it and explain why. Um, because it's a little bit nuanced, I think. For sure. For starters, I think it's super interesting to establish that Vitalik Buterin, the developer of Ethereum, was on the Lex Friedman podcast last month. And he said, he admitted that Bitcoin is money. In the use case of store of value monetary asset, Bitcoin is the King Kong. Ethereum is trying to accomplish a different problem. So if you're investing in Ethereum and you don't agree with its developer, you need to reassess your thesis. It'd be what I'd say off the, off the get-go. I, um, I listened to that podcast and I thought Vitalik was incredibly honest throughout. He did a good job of explaining what it is their goals are, how they're getting there. And, and he did completely and honestly say that he's a Bitcoiner. He's been involved in Bitcoin since 2010. He's and, owned Bitcoin forever. Yeah, he was a Bitcoin core dev. He was a Bitcoin core developer. He, and he also worked on Bitcoin Magazine back in the day. But he, he saw another use case for blockchain that he wanted to seize. And he thought, there's no way to do this on Bitcoin at the moment. So I'm going to start something else that is going to try to achieve some of those goals. Some of those goals were, I mean, coming to fruition now, which is decentralized finance. He wanted to be able to tokenize things like stocks. He wanted to be able to tokenize things like um, mortgage, like ownership of your house and car and a lot of other things that he thought would be better uh, suited for digital contracts rather than lawyer-based paper contracts like we operate today. And I, I think he's done a pretty good job, but he's also made some gaffes and mistakes along the way. And I, but I do honestly think that he's an honest actor in the space. I don't think that he has motives or malevolent intentions behind him. You, you have to be aware of the blind spots of the, the community you're in. Neither one of us are super fond of titles or like identifying as something, but we would be categorized as Bitcoin maxis. We, that's who we're following on Twitter and engaging with and reading. And I would say a blind spot of some Bitcoin maxis is they, they do view Vitalik as malevolent. As you said, he's not. I would, I would challenge those people in my own community, like, go listen, go read, reassess your thesis and understanding, because I do have respect 
for Vitalik and the for just from the few times I've listened to him, the person that he is and his intentions seem to me somewhat pure. It sounds like you agree. Yeah, I do agree. Like I think we've said, and we'll enumerate here a little bit more. He's they did a pre-mine in Ethereum. I mean, they've they've done some things that I don't necessarily agree with, but I think the counter-argument to the reasoning why is they put a ton of blood, sweat, and tears into building this network. And I mean, I think Vitalik was living on a couch throughout the development. I don't I think he poured all of his money into it. I don't think that it's um evil to try to take some money back from something that you built. And that is going to be, that's a very nuanced topic, especially when talking about these shit coiners, because you could apply that same logic to Jed McCaleb, for example. I think that really when you drill down to it, it really becomes what was the outset goal here and is it realistic? And if Jed McCaleb was an honest guy, wouldn't it be more forthright for him to say, well, we've, uh, We've seen something that's a superior technology. Why don't we move our tech over to that and build on the superior network versus let's keep ushering and shoveling this dog shit into people's mouths that don't understand what it is they're buying. I'm going to go down a slight rabbit hole here, but I, I think you've hit on something important there because a lot of these developers on these altcoins are obviously monetarily motivated. They want to make money. It's hard to admit that your project is now being swallowed by the Kraken. And that just keeps happening as Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is open source and programmable, like the internet itself. In 1994, it seemed impossible that we were going to stream video through the internet. And here we are today. I'm stream, I don't have cable anymore. I'm just streaming video through the internet. It seemed impossible. Just as in the beginning of Bitcoin, smart contracts seemed impossible. Well, it's showing that it's very likely they won't be, that that use case very well may be swallowed by Bitcoin. And this principle is carrying through other aspects. Some things that come to mind for me are, you know, people will say, well, my, my altcoin allows for more throughput than Bitcoin. Well, Q Lightning Network, a second layer solution that came after SegWit in 2017, bam, obsoleted. My my altcoin provides better privacy. Well, now welcome new developments on Bitcoin like Taproot, Segwit, non-KYC exchanges. Oh, and the fact that it's open source and that there's tons of ideas that haven't been introduced yet that are going to increase privacy. So some of that is being swallowed. And then the smart contracts thing, back to Ethereum. Bitcoin can't do smart contracts, so we're going to start Ethereum. Well, now with things like discrete log contracts on Bitcoin... I got to think some of these Ether people are starting, they're starting to freak out a little bit and go, holy crap, maybe Bitcoin's going to be able to accomplish that too. And when you think about how secure the base layer is on Bitcoin and how important that foundation is, it's very possible, and we would argue likely that, yeah, all these use cases are going to be swallowed by Bitcoin. An analogy I could draw here, Josh, is like, to some extent, I feel like the people on Ether are building a gorgeous master bathroom on top of the grass in the front lawn of a home construction site and like the foundation hasn't even been built yet. Wait a second. Hold on. Let's let's get some solid concrete, some good footings. Let's get some studs and rafters up and then you can build your master bathroom. You kind of know what I mean? Yeah, and in the case of ether, 
unfortunately, because of the way they built it initially, it can't scale in, in very well. So they're having to upgrade this thing. And I think a good analogy for trying to understand what that means is it's kind of like changing parts of your engine while you're driving down the road in your car. You can't stop the car because then every the music stops and the whole protocol fails. So you're having to, hmm. you know, stick and bubble gum this thing together while it's moving. And there's all kinds of un- unknown unknowns that can happen in that kind of a situation. That's one of the primary reasons, to be honest with you, that I'm not interested in putting my money in Ethereum at this point because there's just so many unknown unknowns and enough known unknowns that it's just not a a stable place to be putting your money on a protocol level. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about price right now. Just on the protocol level, there's so many things that we are not sure if are going to work the way they're theorized to work or if this thing may be just going to fold itself into Bitcoin in the long run anyway. So as far as I'm concerned, because of the way the network is operating, because there's so many pieces that have to come together and dovetail perfectly in order for this to work in the long term, that my money personally in this crypto space is sticking to Bitcoin and it could possibly move over to, to Ethereum if we see proof of stake working extremely well, everything's greased running machine that is not having no problems at all. And we're seeing some real movement into that space. It's a possibility. I wouldn't disregard it out of hand. But the counterpoint to that is, like you said, these discrete log contracts, all of the second layer smart contracts that are going to be enabled by Lightning and Liquid on the side, and probably other networks we haven't even heard of that people are cooking up right now to put on top of Bitcoin. Definitely other networks. Yeah. My God, like I, I just can't, I really can't see how these things are not going to end up moving over to Bitcoin because of the decentralization and the security that that protocol at its baseline provides. And the track record. I am in total agreement with what you just described from my own portfolio and personal investment strategy. If someone says to me, why are you not invested in Ethereum? Why did you exit your position? Which I, that's the the coin that I, I had a tiny position relative to my portfolio size in Ether that I actually exited last year. It's that recent. I held on to just a small amount like, uh, maybe there's something. But for me, what ultimately was the nail in the coffer is just Ethereum to me is unproven. And I'm, I'm not interested in investing in protocols that are unproven. We don't have time in this episode to dive into the, the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. We'll just keep it this simple. These are two different approaches to security on a cryptographic protocol. Bitcoin runs on proof of work. It has run on proof of work since 2009, and we know that proof of work works. It's shown that it works. It's unchangeable. It's immutable. It's censorship resistant. It's anti-fragile. Ethereum was created in 2015, and it has also run on proof of work. But because they're having scaling issues on Ethereum, they are now having to pivot. You said they're having to fix the motor while the car's running. I've heard Preston Pish say they're performing open heart surgery on this thing, and he's only going to take a look at it once the surgery is over. And I completely agree. We don't have proof that proof of stake, which Ethereum is moving to, is a valid and robust security model. And 
honestly, until that's proven, we don't know that those concrete footings and that foundation of the house isn't going to crack. So for me, to be as nice as I can to Ethereum, I would say I'm sitting out until it proves itself to be a viable security model when they make this transition to proof of stake. Yep. I think that covers it well. Um, the differences between proof of work and proof of stake are pretty extensive and we'll definitely dive into that later. But if we go down that rabbit hole right now, it'll take us quite a while. Yeah. We, we should do a whole episode on that. We should bring someone on too. We'll, we'll try yeah. to prioritize that because I think that is important to understand, but yeah, it would take way longer than sure would. we have in this episode. So the pre-mine, which I mentioned earlier on Ether, was a two-week period in 2014. Um, I think it was September 2014. There's a two-week period when they were selling Ether at 30 cents per Ether before the network even started. And this was to fund themselves and send some Ether into the Ether. Get it? Mm-hmm. Um, so they, Clever. they... Yeah, I know. Very right. They sold 60 million Ether. And then they gave themselves six million to the co-founders, which included Vitalik, who collected five hundred fifty-three thousand. And then they gave six million to the Ether Foundation, so that worked out to ten percent, roughly, for the founders, ten percent for the foundation. Ether has a non-capped supply, limited to eighteen million ETH minted per year. And as far as we know, because you cannot actually validate this with a node, as we found out last year. Um, Ether has purportedly has 116 million units in circulation, uh, an average rate of inflation of 8.3%. Like I said, they can print 18 million of these things a year. So even if you believe that Ether is great, it's going to work perfectly. All of the open heart surgery and work on the motor in action is going to work out perfectly. You still have a centralized authority that can decide we're printing 18 million of them this year and they can they can dissolve some of the value you have by simply printing more into, into circulation which is back down to the bedrock problem that we're looking at in the current financial system which is that there's an authority that can decide they're going to print as much money as they want with disregard to how that affects you or me or anyone in any third world country that's using the dollar there's literally no cap on the amount of ether that can exist. So that's a huge consideration if you're deciding that ETH is something you want to store value in. Yeah, they have a set of pliers that are wide open and your balls are right between them. <laughs> I mean, it's scary. Oh, what a great it's, analogy. Oh, thank you. Dude, the, yeah, you, you, you uh, hinted at this, but it's, it's, we got to go back and say, we don't know how many Ethereum there are. Like, that's a huge deal. We don't know what the supply is and we don't know what the supply will be. It's so much different than Bitcoin. We know the exact issuance schedule. We can measure that out all the way to the year 2140. We can audit the supply of Bitcoin on our own node. And then that's juxtaposed against Ethereum. It's almost impossible to run your own node if you're a normal functioning human being because it's such a dense amount of storage that you need to run a node. Well, it's not only that, it's like the technicalities of it too. Like if, if you're just a normal average person who's not a programmer, good luck. And then you can't audit the supply cap of it. It's a problem. So while we're talking about nodes, Ethereum has 4,400 of them. So I mean, far surpasses most of these other shit coins as far as nodes are concerned. Do you know how many of those are running on Infura by chance? 
I don't know that. That'd number. be interesting to find out, but I think it's a huge percentage. I did see a graph when I was looking up these numbers that broke it down into like six different variations of ether. And I think, yeah, I'm not going to try to guess because I don't remember off the top of my head, but a, a large portion, like 80% of them were on one protocol. Some of the others were running something slightly variation of it. I think it might've been something that was a soft fork that they decided not to run for one reason or another. But yeah, 4,400 nodes in total versus Bitcoin's 83,000. One other thing I wanted to interject was before we got off like Bitcoin subsuming this use case potentially with things like discrete log contracts and other um, smart contract applications that Bitcoin is doing and showing signs of being able to do. I think what's scary for the Ethereum community, this is obviously coming from a Bitcoiner, but is that they're trying to do this whole decentralized finance thing. I mean, decentralized is in the name of what they're trying to accomplish. And my question to somebody is like, wouldn't you, if you're trying to do DeFi, wouldn't you want to work on top of the most decentralized base layer to build DeFi on top of a base layer that's semi-centralized, which is kind of the way I would describe Ethereum, seems to uh, contradict the whole proposition in my mind. Yeah, the whole ethos is violated. So I would tie this together by saying Bitcoin is far, far, far more decentralized than Ethereum. So if you're trying to do decentralized finance and smart contracts and, and Bitcoin ever gets to a point where it can do them just as well or close to as well, which it's showing signs that maybe it could, look out because it is going to feed on your whole coin. It's going to feed. That's what it does. It shows up to the Lake County Fair and it feeds on all the animals there, all the pigs, your prize pig, your prize pony. It's going to just consume. Sings a predator. Large recap here on Ethereum. Large, uncapped supply with a guaranteed 7% inflation, inflation rate in the future. A more centralized protocol development, very influenced by Vitalik and the Ethereum Foundation. Very few full nodes compared to Bitcoin. And the mining algorithm is in the migration process to proof of stake from proof of work, introducing massive uncertainty and risk. I think we've uh, gotten through Ethereum pretty well. I don't think I've got anything else to say on that one. I think we're not at this stage, folks. We, Josh and Dan, are not willing to make this a certified shitcoin. It's in the shitcoin gray area. It's a. It's not a blue collar Bitcoin certified shitcoin. We're still assessing. I think the word I'm going to use to summarize Ethereum is unproven, and so therefore I'm not going to put my hard earned capital to work on the Ethereum protocol. Yeah, we're going to, we'll get back to that one whenever we decide if it is truly a shitcoin or if uh, we're going to start dipping our toe in the water. If we decide to certify it, we'll, we'll get it out ASAP. Yeah, ASAP for sure. All right, the last one we're going to talk about for the, uh, for the pod here, Dogecoin. Dogecoin. All right. So we're talking about, we talked about the uh, dollar amount this thing would be worth if it was in comparison to Bitcoin, as in the amount of units in supply. If there were 21 million Dogecoins, we'd be looking at a price of $1,361. That is an expensive joke, man. (laughs) (laughs) That is the most expensive joke I've ever heard of. It was created by Billy Marcus and Jackson Palmer, who we're going to call Lucky Palmer. 
as I referred to him earlier. Yeah, you called him that in an, e- an earlier episode, didn't you? And you you were dead serious too. Yeah, I did. Lucky Palmer. It's a better name than Jackson anyway. Uh, they decided to create a payment system as a joke. And they've both said, full stop, this is a joke. And they were trying to make fun of the wild speculation in cryptocurrencies in December of 2013. They created it in two hours by copying the Bitcoin protocol, changing some parameters around and sending this thing out into the world as a fully fledged joke to the unsuspecting Elon Musk followers who decided that it could actually be a real currency. (laughs) It has a supply of 100 billion initially. For some reason, I've noticed a lot of shit coins love that 100 billion number. It's a lot. And I suspect that they understand the human psychology behind Mm. having a very small unit price. Yeah. That's my suspicion. But I just wonder why it is that they choose 100 billion. Why not 200 billion? Why not a trillion? I mean, at a trillion, you'd be talking about um, some very small numbers per unit. So they updated this thing in 2015 to 5 billion more issued per year. So at this time, there's around 130 billion Dogecoins in supply. The largest wallet in Dogecoin, last I've checked, owns 28% of the total supply. Wow. They can make or break this entire market with one wallet. The top five hold 40%. And there are 1,300 nodes, which is quite surprising for something like Dogecoin, but I suspect that it has something to do with them using lightning nodes. I'm not, I'm sorry, uh, not lightning, uh, Litecoin nodes. So it's piggybacking on the Litecoin network as far as mining, because if they hadn't piggybacked onto lightning a couple of years ago, the project was so dead that it would have failed and completely just disappeared. There would have been no Dogecoin left because it was such a dead project. There actually hasn't even been development on the project since 2015. This is the most obviously certified blue-collar Bitcoin shitcoin that uh, we've even looked at tonight. Take it from the developer himself. What was the tweet? Wasn't there a tweet between Elon Musk and Lucky Palmer? (laughs) Yeah, Lucky. What was that again? I'm trying to remember this off the top of my head, but it was something to the point where he said, this was created as a joke and it stands as a joke. That's the, the gist of what he was saying to Elon. From the guy that created it. From the creator. And Elon addressing Dogecoin developers, like that is one of the most ridiculous things. I mean, if there are Dogecoin developers now, they exist because of Elon Musk. I mean, there probably were some guys who were like, you know what? Fuck it. I, I know how to program. I'm now a certified Dogecoin programmer because Elon Musk is looking for somebody. Yeah, and I can leech leech off some people that have no idea what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. To break this thing down again, a massive supply of 130 plus billion with 5 billion more every year. I mean, few nodes, a mining network operating piggyback on another network because it's such a failed project. It was overtly a joke. Development is non-existent. And the code base hasn't been updated since 2015. I mean, I don't think we need to do anything more to, to certify this thing. What do you think? Yeah, we're done. I like it. We've worked through a number of altcoins in specific. Obviously, we could keep going one by one. We've only got so much time. We certified a number of coins as shit coins in this discussion. As we wrap this thing up, 
I would encourage the audience to be able to explain how and why your favorite altcoin is going to outperform Bitcoin. That's the challenge I give you. If you're going to continue to invest in diverse projects in cryptocurrency, have your measurement of, of success or failure be Bitcoin's returns. And I'm not saying you're going to reach the exact same conclusion as Josh and I. You may not. But have some firepower. Have some reasoning and logic behind why you're investing in these coins. Study more about them and be able to explain to me why it's going to outperform Bitcoin on a three, five, 10 year time horizon. I really just want to impart on everyone that the entire ethos, the entire reason for any of this to exist is to take power away from an intermediary, whoever that is. It doesn't matter if you think that's a bank, a government, um, a credit union you use, whoever it is that you would like to disintermediate yourself from and have absolute sovereign control over your money and your financial future. If that's the reason you're in this, and it should be because that's the reason this stuff exists, then you should find yourself the most decentralized, most robust, highest security coin that exists. And that should probably be where you place the majority, if not all of the money that you have to allocate to this space. You should apply those metrics to any and all altcoins or shit coins that you decide you want to uh, invest in or more likely speculate in. If it's speculation you're after, be wary because these things will bite you and bite you hard. Keep your time frame long term, at least five to 10 years. Recognize the attributes that give things value in this space. Buy what you're comfortable with and sit on it. Don't trade it. Don't play. Just sit and hodl. And we've used the word decentralization a ton in this discussion. The word decentralization is more than philosophical. It's more than some libertarian buzzword. Decentralization on a monetary protocol means trust. Those two things in my mind are equated, and trust is a huge catalyst for value in a monetary asset. So I think there is a correlation that can be made there. More decentralization means more trust, means more ability to accrue value. And Bitcoin is so head and shoulders above the rest in terms of decentralization. It's what sets it apart from all other altcoins and shitcoins. Buy some Bitcoin and forget about it. Just don't lose it. All right, we're going to wrap this up. I got to pee like a Clydesdale. Josh, it's been a pleasure. Same, man. Pleasure's all on this side. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind. And our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.